part. Anyway, um, just a couple of things. I, I just want to give one more lecture about, uh, about formal analysis. But before I do that, I want to take note of the fact. Um, you all did notice that Mr. Lee was present for attendance last week and then left for the entire session. No one noticed? I noticed because I took his chair, right? He never came back for it. Um, it's an interesting thing. And I, I'm, a, a student of mine who is also a teacher here uh, was telling me that in the class he teaches, the big issue is not just take attendance, but when you take attendance. Because if you take it at the beginning of the class, a lot of students disappear in the lecture in the course of the lecture. Uh, so they take it, they decide to take it now at the beginning and in the middle of the class, which is really kind of an astonishing thing if you think about it. Um, and it occurred to me that, that this is something I've noticed, especially in this, in this class, that is worth noticing. The, um, you know, we have online classes and we have online classes everywhere now. They're, they're becoming, they're the next thing, right? There's, there's a whole academy, the Khan Academy or something, where you can learn anything online. And all these big universities are moving into <coughs> online education. Uh, you can hear lectures by their distinguished professors online. And the way I always looked at it before was, what is the theory of education that supposes that you can learn from an image on screen? And the, the theory of education behind that would be that the only thing that's conveyed in the classroom is information, because that's really all you're going to get. Nothing else is going to actually appear. There isn't going to be a class discussion. And if there is any kind of discussion, this is too good to make true. Let's just observe him for a second, and then we'll get to, we'll get to it. Um, with any kind of discussion, it's going to be taking place in a mediated fashion in a kind of chat room, which is, again, not a social situation. I've always thought, well, that's, that's bad because there's more to education than simply conveying of information. In fact, everything that actually is conveyed in education when a person is lucky enough to get one comes from the grieving with teachers who, with whom that student has a relationship that is fundamentally physical, actually. When I was a student, uh, my teachers conveyed to the class what constituted uh, an intelligent response or an interesting response, not by saying something or by giving information as to what would constitute such a response, but by the infinitesimal micro emotions they would show on their face. That's how you knew that you were, uh, that you were saying something stupid or the person next to you was saying something smart. Those things can't be conveyed online, but they're certainly conveyed in an atmosphere. And it's that kind of grieving with the teacher, which is the traditional mode of learning. It's the way the apprenticeship learns from the master. Uh, it's the way, to, to use a stupid reference to an old TV show, uh, the kung fu student learns from the kung fu master in that stupid TV show called Kung Fu, right? You have to grieve with the master. Um, and it's the way scientists learn from each other, and it's one of the reasons why, uh, why science is an ongoing uh, the um, I've used this anecdote a million times, but it's worth, worth noticing. A few years ago, it was noticed that six some Nobel Prize winners all had the same teacher. So they decided to find out what this teacher was doing right because he was turning out Nobel Prize winners. And they expected to find some formula for turning out Nobel Prize winners. But when they asked the scientists what they had learned from this guy, he said, they said, and I'm almost quoting this, 
well, what you kind of figured, what you kind of learned from him was what would, what, what might be an interesting question. All right, now you can't, you can't convey that informationally. That's something you have to sort of see the teacher asking <coughs> or rejecting or just sort of generally emanating it, right? And that's really the way education works. That's really the way people learn when they're learning anything that's valuable. Information you can always get from anywhere, right? But what you can't get from another human being is that kind of approach to things, kind of taste. Um, the great physicist Feynman said that he had learned from, from his, uh, his teachers taste. So you, you picked up taste. And what he meant by taste was apparently what would be an interesting question in physics, right? Or what, what, what would be worth looking at? And he couldn't define it any further. And it wasn't because he lacked for brains. <laughs> None of these people lacked for brains. Um, it's just that what was being conveyed was actually um, uh, what, what the philosopher of science, Paul Andy, calls personal knowledge. And you can only learn from another human being. That seems to be something that's going to disappear from online learning. Um, but I was looking at it from another point of view uh, lately for reasons that, that I think you'll all understand, which would look at it from the student's point of view. What kind of student would be comfortable thinking they were learning in that environment? Um, what kind of kid would be, what kind of kid who would take an online class? Well, it would be someone who would think that learning could go on without such interpersonal relations, that it could be done in a, in a, uh, at home by themselves and in no context with that, while they're picking their nose, while they're distracted by their telephone, while they're petting their cat, or while they're doing any number of things that are directly related to what the person on screen is doing. Now, if you have such a student who, who regards learning in that way as something that is not done with others in a social atmosphere, and when I say social, I just mean the typical definition of it, that there is mutual monitoring going on. In other words, a social situation is when you are in mutual perceptual range of another person, uh, such as we are. You're not when you're learning online, because that person can't see you. Right, that's why you can pick your nose while well, well, the distinguished professor at Yale is lecturing about Hopkins. Um, that's not a social situation, it isn't mutual. Right? When you're talking to your friend on the telephone, it is a social situation because you are actually in perceptual range. Whether texting is social or not, I, I, I don't know, but I don't think so because there's no real perceptual range there. So if you take a student who's accustomed to that kind of uh, interaction in a classroom, where there's no social situation being built up and no one's in perceptual range, and you put them in a classroom like this one, what do you get? Right? That's the question. And what you get is what in English we call a bore. You get boorish behavior. You get behavior that is, in the highest sense, unmannered. No manners, right? In other words, it is good manners when somebody's talking, look at them, right? If you were talking to me after class and I would have suddenly start, you know, like fiddling with something or looking around scratching my leg or something like that, you would experience that as rude behavior, right? You would actually experience it that way. And it would be rude behavior because it is a convention and not a, not a trivial one that when someone is talking, you look at them. Also, you listen to them, right? That's another convention of, of matters. And if you're not listening to someone and while they're talking and it becomes clear to them that you're not listening, they will regard you as an unmanaged and boorish person, right? 
Now, I'm not the only one talking in this classroom, so it would also be unmattered not to listen to each other, right? And of course, we've had egregious examples of that lately, when a student will suddenly come up from his doodling and say something that somebody just said two minutes before. All right, and everyone laughs, and it's funny, but it really is a revelation on the part of on the student that that student is an unmattered, boorish person. That's all there is to it. Yes? I have a question. Did the meeting, like, two hours of, like, a person is able to, like, actively listen for two and a half hours? Yes. So for mm -hmm. two hours of listening, like, actively, like, yes. really, really listen? That's the expectation in a class. Well, it is, yes. If you can't, but if you can't meet that expectation, you shouldn't be in the class. It's as simple as that, actually. Um, now, the reason why the unmattered behavior is, is relevant when it comes to, to the point you raised, you know, on the subway, you can, you can, you can do anything, right? Nobody cares. Right? You're not a, you're only in a temporary social situation. And it used to be a sign on the subway, by the way, no spitting. <laughs> right? There used to be in every station, right? Because people used to just spit on the, in the you know, the spit. It was amazing. It's still no spitting on buses? It's, it's, it's I thought that was the last place you could spit. But no, it's now prohibited. That kind of behavior is one thing, but because but you have to take the F train or whatever train you're taking, right? Or, uh, you know, in prison, I suppose, you can, you can insult each other as much as you like. But what makes the classroom different from those situations is that this is actually a voluntary situation. You elected to be in this class, in this classroom. No one forced you to do it. Not only could you have taken different courses if you had decided to, but you don't have to be in school, right? So the idea that, that, that matters of that kind are expected of you is not, un, is not unreasonable. You, you ask to come here, right? And by not behaving in a way that is appropriate to it, you are unmannerly, right? I don't know how else to put it. That's one of the ways in which I would describe some of the behavior in here. Um, and I must tell you, I absolutely despise it. Now, it may not matter to you that I despise any particular one of you, but it matters to me, and it matters to the people to whom it matters. And I think it's, sometimes it's, it's good to hear that someone actually shares the feeling of, this, of contempt that, every, that some students are actually nursing throughout the class. The teacher shares it too, right? Um, it's a funny thing because uh, in my day, and it was a while ago, the people who had the best manners, the people who were the most explicitly mannered, People who would make you feel at home at any, in any situation, who would always efface themselves uh, in order to make you more comfortable, right? Who anticipated your, your needs because they were thinking about you, right? Those people were always the sons of the rich. Sons and daughters of the rich, I should say, right? In other words, in America anyway, old money meant good manners. And that's what old money meant. New money never meant good matters, right? But old money meant new matters. And whether it's because that was old money, or whether it's because it's American old money, or whether it's because in America there's always been an idea that everybody should, who had money should behave like an English aristocrat, which were also exquisitely mattered, it was always like that. I don't think that's the case today. I don't think that children of the rich are particularly the best mattered among us. I think they're the worst mattered among us, actually. Uh, and I've, I've noted that too. So anyway, that's just a by the way, uh, just a, a sort of thing. It's interesting to look at education, not only from the point of view of what they have constitutes education, but the concept of the student is as well, and then the student's expectation of it.
In high school, you have to go to high school, right? That is compelled. College isn't compulsory, you know. And certainly, this class isn't compulsory. I didn't. I was slow to pick up on this, but uh, I should have given this speech a little bit sooner. Uh, but it's worth giving at any point. It's just a takeaway for the takeaway. All right. And yes, it's possible to listen to two and a half hours. Let, let me tell you while we're on that subject. No, I think it is something that I think like there's sometimes where people are human and they space out without even knowing. Look, learning, listening is something you learn to do. Hmm? Listening yeah, is something right. you learn to do. And like everything that you learn to do, you learn to do by doing it. Um, and people will live up to expectations if you have them, and they will live down to expectations if you don't have them. Uh, and it would seem to me that it would be good to teach anyway to have expectations of being listened to. So there, all right. Um, the, well, the response to all that might be that manners are simply formal and trivial, don't mean anything, and you can behave. You know, you can be a scoundrel and have exquisite manners, right? You can be a cad. You can be a heel and have exquisite manners. Um, but the alternate view of that is that uh, a convention, which is what manners really are, don't arise accidentally, and they don't arise out of nowhere. They arise out of a real human need. And a deep convention is a deep need, right? Um, People live with each other. They have to evolve forms of living with each other to enable them to both reduce the friction that might arise, but also maximize the benefits of, of social life together. Those conventions do that, right? Um, it's a convention on the New York City subway not to look at anybody. And if you do, you find out very rapidly you have made a mistake because <laughs> uh, it's interpreted as a hostile thing. Uh, that's because people are going to be very close to each other and they don't want anybody engaging at, in that context. It seems like a convention, but it actually answers a deep need. Right? Otherwise, it wouldn't have evolved. Um, people look at each other when they're talking because they have to find out from the person opposite them whether they're being understood. And communication is a deep human need. Right? Uh, and that's why that convention arises. They're not trivial, in other words. Tendency to reduce all conventions to trivialities and form, mere formalities. But forms are often very significant, and some forms contain a whole history of civilization. Right, so think of it that way. Anyway, one last uh, thing about formal analysis, because it sometimes comes up um, whether this, some of you, like Mr. Emmerich, has read, well, did you read Collingwood? Yeah, yeah you did. Um, has, has, has encountered the expression theory of art, which is the theory of art that uh, is probably, maybe not so much in fashion now, but it's probably the dominant theory of art of the 20th century, that art is expression of emotion, right? And before you jump down my throat, I don't mean displaying emotion. Art is not the display of emotion. Babies display emotion. It's expression. Expression means something highly specific in these theories, as does emotion and as does art. Um, and I want to explain how that theory of art is coherent with this theory of formal analysis, and that they can be brought into harmony with each other. Um, I'm going to do it through the philosopher Collingwood, so I'm going to be simplifying his argument somewhat, but I'll, I'll give me, allow me, if you will. Um, Collingwood 
makes a distinction from the outset between art and craft. Right? All the mistakes about thinking about art have arisen from the fact that thinking of art as a kind of craft. Now, the characteristics of craft are that there is always a preconceived end before the craftsman does anything. And once he knows the preconceived end, he gets means appropriate to that end. So someone who's going to build a table knows exactly the size of the table he's going to build, all the rest of it, right? Otherwise, what's he doing? You just don't go into the, you just start improvising the table, right? You know in advance, and when you know the size of the table, you go about getting the hammer, the nails, and all the rest of it to get the end to, to, to do it. Another attribute of, of craft is that it is, uh, there's always a material that receives a new form in the act of crafting, right? In principle, the wood that you make the table of could have taken a different form, or the form could have had a different, a different pieces of wood to make the table, right? And all that's very commonplace, and as Collingwood says, we all know this, but we, it doesn't describe many cases of art. The, the poet coming up with verses in his head while he's out for a walk doesn't have a preconceived idea of what the poem is gonna be. He doesn't say to himself, I will write a poem with ten lines with the following words in the following order. Because if he did that, he's already written the poem. Right? So there's no preconceived end. You have to discover what it is, right? Um, and there's no material out of which a poem is made in the same sense it's something that's made in craft, right? What are you making it up? It's in your head, right? It's not a material object. You're actually putting words together in your head. They're not material in the same way the craftsman's material is material. So there's no question of transformation of material, which is why in the arts you do not, you can never imagine the content being in a different form or the form being in a different content, because there's no separability of form and content as there is material and uh, form and craft. Now the end that craft is aiming at, says Collingwood, uh, is not what you think. The aim of the table maker is not to make a table. It's to produce a state of mind in the consumer who buys the table of having the need for a table satisfied, right? The shoemaker who makes a pair of shoes is not just doing making a pair of shoes. He's making a pair of shoes in order to bring about a state of mind of satisfaction in the person who buys the shoes, right? So craft is always, the end product of craft is always a state of mind of some kind or another, right? Uh, and, and that, pretty much defined that, that idea of art, which Collingwood calls the technical theory of art, that is that art is some kind of a craft, does really define, or does really adequately describe the three theories of art that I've been putting on this side of the board. Uh, the guy who thinks that there's a super sensible truth, right, that he's gonna make a sensible artwork to embody, already knows what the truth is. He's in the position of a craftsman who has the end already in mind, right? He's trying, he knows he's trying to produce a state of mind in the audience, namely that state of mind of learning what the truth is, right? Whatever that is. And he already knows what the truth is already. So he, he knows in advance what he has to do and he knows how to go about doing it. Uh, the guy who says that art is a cause of effects is a craft person par excellence. Right? because the effect he's trying to bring about is a state of mind in his audience. And he knows what that state of mind is, and then he goes about and finds out what will cause that state of mind. He really is a craftsman. 
Collingwood at this point says there are two kinds of effects that you can you can that these sort of people produce. Either they arouse emotion for the sake of discharging the emotion in life, or they arouse emotion for the sake of discharging the emotion, uh, discharging emotion in the activity itself. This he calls magic. This he calls amusement. In other words, if I, if I make a speech that gets you to go out in the street and rush the Federal Reserve Bank on Wall Street, then I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to arouse emotion that would discharge itself into action. If I show you a movie in which Martians invade the Earth, a band of heroic Americans, why not, uh, somehow save the world, you're having all sorts of thrills and chills in the course of that, but the emotions are discharged in the activity themselves. You don't then rush out into the world and try to kill aliens. In fact, it's very important in amusement that you don't do that. That you get that, that's why, by the way, the movies are killing aliens and not, not rounding up Jews, because that would breach the amusement reality barrier a little bit too uncomfortably, right? So you always make a make-believe situation in which emotions are aroused and emotions are discharged. Kraft describes that perfectly, and that's what Kraft is. The conventions, but of course you know the effect in advance. The same thing with the idea that art is a set of conventions. The artist already knows the conventions. He's trying to bring a state of mind about in the audience of having seen these conventions adequately embodied in their work. Right? So all of these are subsumable to the technical theory of art, and as such, they're all, by calling the standards, crafts. Now we know that over here, art is self-intelligible holes. I don't want to go any more into that. Um, but what does Collingwood think art is, right? And what is the expression of emotion? Well, for Collingwood, the person who uh, is in the act of expression starts off by saying, I feel, I don't know what I feel. Right? You're all familiar with this state, right? You have something that you want to say, but you don't know what it is. Something that you feel, but you can't express. From which he ends up in a position to say that, I'm just going to say points to artwork, I know that points to artwork is what I feel. In other words, the act of expression is the act of coming to know the emotion that you have and didn't know until you express it. Now it can't be a craft because you don't know what the feeling is. So you don't know what technique to use to express it. If you knew, you'd be in a position of a craftsman. But the very act of expression predicates the idea that you don't know until you've expressed it what it is. Expression is blind, can't anticipate its own results. You don't know what your emotion is until you've expressed it. So you can't formulate a plan to yourself how to go about expressing it. Expression is an activity of which there is no technique, as the philosopher puts it. So all technical training is completely irrelevant to the arts. But we already knew this, right? Everyone already knew that. That's after news. Um, now, the, the feeling here, right? For Collingwood, the arts always express emotions. The emotions might arise from sensation, as when you see a leaping gazelle and have an emotion because it's beautiful and you feel something. It also arise from thinking, as when you think complicated thoughts and have the, the, the emotional effort of thinking them, or the excitement of thinking them. Um, 
you might have seen someone thinking a thought and having and being excited by the thinking of it. It's the kind of person who you say, that was really intense. Uh, because what you're actually responding to is the emotional investment or the emotional activity of the person thinking, and you're not really listening to the thoughts so much. Um, alas, it does happen. Uh, so these are always, always emotions, um, but they're always particular and individual emotions. They're what you feel, who you are, on that particular occasion, that that, in that particular instance, in that particular way. Arts, the art, art never generalizes. It always individualizes, right? That's the burden of that idea. Now, the emotion that you feel, let's say you as a student in my other class said she had been shocked and pissed off when somebody uh, made a, I don't know what, we never did find out what she was pissed off about. We gather if she was approached on the street by someone who said something like, Hey, good looking, what's cooking? I assume, anyway, perhaps a more artful approach. But she was offended, she was shocked and pissed off by it. But now, her shock and pissed offness is particular to her, right? It's her, it's her getting shocked and pissed off on that occasion with that guy in that way, that moment. But that doesn't mean that because it's completely original, that is to say, it originates with the person that it's unlike everybody else's emotions on similar occasions. There's nothing in the world that favors dissimilarity over similarity in emotions. We all know what it means to be pissed off. We can all kind of figure out what it is when she's pissed off about it. It's, it's also, well, wouldn't it be also like how, how she like, reacts to those kinds of, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like the life of being her childhood, like something happened. A that, million things. You know, like in their yeah, but while we're emphasizing that it's original and completely individual, let's not emphasize that it's completely unique and therefore unintelligible, right? Um, the person who's pissed off at that is a person is a person not unlike ourselves who has who knows what it is to be pissed off and knows what a come on is and all those sorts of things. In other words, if we belong to much the same situation, if we're brought up in much the same circumstances, we'll have many, many of the similar emotions. Won't be identical, but they'll be close enough to be intelligible. It would be rare if somebody, if she were to recount the story, to say, "I don't understand what was so right." That would never happen because we've all, we all can, we can all, uh, I say, sympathize. Actually, literally sympathize with it, feel the same thing she felt, right? If she's able to express it to us, right? If not, we wouldn't be able to. Um, so these are originals, but they are also intelligible. Right? The hallmark of expression is intelligibility. You go from not knowing something to knowing something. So if, it go, if, so if something is known, it must be intelligible. Knowing something is, in fact, what intelligible means. It's knowable, right? So when you go from not knowing what you feel to knowing what you feel, the expression, the hallmark of expression is always intelligibility. Right? That's all there is to it. And most people hear that art is self-expression. They expect it to be unintelligible, personal, effusing of emotions, right, without any kind of intelligibility at all. But that's not the characteristic of expression in the expression period, right? Uh, expression, when, they, when they're talking about expression, they're talking about the kind of things we've been dealing with in this class. They're talking about things that are actually intelligible and made. Um, if you didn't know, if you went, I don't know, I, know, I feel, I don't know what I feel. I still don't know what I feel. <laughs> 
then you're not being intelligible because you don't know, right? And nobody would know what you're talking about unless you completed the expression, then it would become intelligible. Once the expression is intelligible, anybody who is capable of understanding the expression is able to understand your emotion because, uh, because they will actually, as Colin would say, have to rethink your expression and in so doing experience your emotion. It's more complicated than that, but that's basically the thing. Now, if you have things that are original and intelligible, and intelligible to others, they must be self-intelligible. That's all there is to it, right? If nothing else is required, then the expression itself to be understood, and that expression is not relying on anything outside itself for its intelligibility, then that expression must be self-intelligible. So the two theories are actually completely compatible. Not just by magic, but by truth, right? In other words, these works of art that are highly expressive works, as we as we sometimes see in this class, are intelligible to us and also expressive at the same time. How do we know what they're expressing? The same way we understand each other when we talk, because we're the kinds of people who can make sense of the records of their expression, right? You have to be able to, in your own mind, Put together the factors of the expression in order to understand the expression. What Collingwood would say is, if you hear a scientific lecturer say two plus two equals four, you have to be able to add two plus two in your own mind to understand him. You're not just listening to the noises that he's making, you're, you're taking from those noises the action of, of doing something in your own mind to understand it. Presumably, he says, that's why you went to the lecture, to do something, to think the scientist thought, right? So you go to a museum to think the artist's thoughts. And when you do that, you are, uh, you can only do that if you're the kind of person who is equipped to do that. And all that simply means is that the expression theory also has a place for what we've been calling the proper audience. The proper audience are the kind of people who are constituted by experience and interest such that they can make sense of these expressions uh, and, and recover from the artwork or the artifact the actual state of mind that produced it. And not just recover from it, but experience the actual state of mind that produced it, because you couldn't understand it unless you also experienced it. So there's no incompatibility between these two theories. There is in some respects and others not. Material we've been dealing with as if it were actually physical material. We've been dealing with works of art as if the artifact, the painting, the photograph, the movie, the poem, is actually the work of art. Collingwood would say, that's a vulgar error. The artifact is not the work of art. The work of art is what the imagination does when it, when it takes the sensory data that the artifact gives it and reconstructs the imaginative experience of the artwork. In other words, think for itself. Same way the, the lecture, the scientific lecture is giving is not the sounds coming out of his mouth. It's what you do with those sounds to reconstruct his thought in your own mind. The sounds are not the lecture, the thoughts are the lecture. The artifact is not the artwork. What it does with imagination and what you do with your imagination with it is, is the artwork. So that would be one point of departure here because we've been taking material in the Aristotelian sense of actual material. Um, but we've never but we've never assimilated art to craft nonetheless because we've never held that the work as a preconceived end. Uh, we've always left the end sort of in abeyance. Right? We have said, we don't know what the work is for until we know what the work is. Right? 
So we've never been in a position of positing that the artist knew in advance that he was what he was doing and that we had to find that out. Did the objection, how do we know that's what he meant? Collingwood would say, how do you know that you know what anybody meant? The only assurance you have is what he would call empirical and relative. If I'm talking to you and you're talking to me, and we're still talking after a few minutes, we probably have some relative understanding of each other. When one of us sounds like they're talking nonsense, then we know that we haven't understood each other. But that's true with art, too. It's true with any form of, of language, uh, that, that the assurance that you're under, being understood depends on uh, a further conversation. Right? And if you can't make sense of a part of the work, you can be pretty sure you don't, you don't understand it. It's the same way you do with a person opposite you. But if it does make sense to you, and you're actually having an imaginative experience that is a, is a complete one, then you're pretty much on track. And you can be arrested, you can rest assured. All right, that's my last speech on the subject. Jason didn't care of the, of the theory of formal analysis is compatible with the expression theory. The expression theory is really the one uh, you might want to look into. The school always asks you to have a preconceived end. That's what they want to know your concept, and they want to know your process. Now, that's means and ends. That's means and ends, right? You can't have a process that's relevant, that's intelligible, unless you have an end that you already know in advance. But when you actually observe yourself working, you find that you're discovering what your end is in the action of working, and you don't know what it's going to be. You're really in the position, I feel, I don't know what I feel. Or in, in the case of somebody who's handling material, it would be something like, I'm making, I don't know what I'm making, right? I'll find out when I've made it. I'll find out when the thing comes together, what it is I've been doing. But I won't know until that moment, and I can't preconceive it, and I can't anticipate it. If you really observe yourself working, I think that's what you'll find out what you're doing. And the, the people who start with the concept and have a preconceived end may not be excluded from being expressive. It would depend there's some overlap there, but chances are they're not going to be expressive in sense. Uh, every artist knows that the material will tell him what to do if he just waits for it. Right? And not just artists, I'm sure designers know that too. At least in fashion, they would have to know that. They're so absorbed in the material aspects of fashion. And besides, fabric will only let you do what it wants to do. That's very frustrating. I don't know how you deal with it, actually. It must be a real pain in the ass. It's constantly telling you what you can and can't do. Words are a little bit less, less recalcitrant. But a poem will always teach you, it will tell you that that's not right. Just can't get that line right. Yeah, because every the line before it is wrong, asshole. Wake up. It may take a month, but you figure it out. All right, that it? Any questions, comments? Okay. Where were we?